You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. It's Monday, May 25th, 2020. U.S. markets are closed in observance of the Memorial Day holiday. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Raul, it looks like it's you and me again today. It is just us. I think all of the U.K. is closed today for the spring bank holiday. The U.S. is closed. Uh, Europe's open. Asia has been open. So a relatively quiet day because two, uh, two, two of the biggest financial centers are closed. Yeah. But Nonetheless. the Cape is open for business. <laughs> yes, indeed. Nonetheless, lots to talk about. We're going to cover some international property markets. But first, you had an epic Twitter thread over the weekend. You talked about global supply chains, the velocity of the M2 money stock, gold, Bitcoin, US GDP. But the quote that really sums it up for me is debt plus deflation equals ticket to bankruptcy. Yeah, and I've held this view for a long time. In fact, that used to be my Bloomberg header in 2000 when I first started realizing how big the deflationary trend was in the world and realizing that one recession or another, we're going to get to that point. And I've talked about this point in World Vision quite a lot, where rates are at zero and then we've got deflation. And it looks clearer and clearer to me that that, that event is coming fast. I think it's in the next six months where we're going to see that. But that whole thread was about understanding how big this dollar standard system is. You know, that, that even though the U.S. has gone from like 40% or 45% of global trade down to 25%, the dollar accounts for 79.5% of all transactions in all trade in the world, right? So that's lopsided, which means that everybody needs the dollars that the U.S. doesn't really supply as part of its, you know, share of world trade. And this is what creates part of the problem. And you look at the amount of dollars, there's 100 trillion U.S. dollars that are borrowed. That's outside of the financial derivative stuff where you're close to a quadrillion of derivatives. But this in this world, there's about 100 trillion of US dollars that are borrowed. Meanwhile, the Fed balance sheet is trying to paper over the cracks in all the cash flow, and it's 7 trillion. I mean, it's not even close to what potentially could be needed. So the thread was a bit about that and how people don't really understand the size of the issue. I mean, it's not a small thing. It's not like, oh, the Fed are going to... The, 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 um, the the Fred, the Fed are going to fr uh, print a lot and lower rates to zero. And before you know it, poof, the dollar disappears. No, no, that's not going to happen. And when 79.5% of all trade requires dollar payments. Right. So this is the real issue within it and how structurally broken that system is. And then the fact that velocity of money is falling everywhere, not just the US. In fact, everywhere else is lower than the US. And so that plummeting of of um, velocity of money means that none of this money gets out either. So we, we've we've got this perfect storm and people can't see it because they can't taste it. It's not in the headlines. So people don't realize it's there. Um, so I just think it's a really important issue. And yes, I'm clearly early because the dollar 
recently has not moved. Obviously, it's been moving a lot over the last few years, but it's not moved in the last few weeks. And I think that is because nobody's actually settling any bills globally. <laughs> All trade has stopped. But as we open up in, in, in June, people start making payments again and needing dollars. And then that starts putting the strain on the system again. So, you know, it's it's all about that and how it's there's a really big issue here. And, and again, you know, I keep reiterating how it's the golden Bitcoin world for me. Um, yes, I love dollars and I still like bonds, but golden Bitcoin, because even if I'm dead wrong and it's not a deflationary environment where and we, I want to talk about gold in deflation as well, because that's a question that comes up all the time. But in a deflationary environment where there's more printing to come, maybe I'm wrong. And other people are right. It's inflationary, right? That's the big argument you hear mainly on Real Vision. I think I think it's a 75-25 world where 75% of all people think it's an inflationary event. Well, if that's the case, gold goes up anyway. So the point being is it's such a perfect trade. And that's what Alex Gurevich said last week on Real Vision, how perfect a trade gold is for these times. Yeah. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about that uh, the chart uh, for the velocity of M2 money stock that shows the rate at which money is moving through the system. You know, if you go up to FRED, uh, the uh, St. Louis Federal Reserve database, they obviously it's great charting functionality there. Uh, we use it all the time at Real Vision. Their chart goes back to 1959. And what you can see is this is really incredibly range bound between uh, around, uh, you know, 1.6 on the low end uh, and uh, and about 1.9 on the high end in 1990. And then it continues to rise from there to over two. It peaks uh, in the mid 90s and then it slowly rolls over and then it rolls over quickly. It is now down to about 1.2, uh, 1.3 perhaps, which is really dismal. So this is the rate at which money is moving through the US economy and it shows, as you said, uh, that there's no inflation because despite the fact that the Fed balance sheet is expanding massively, the money is not accelerating and, through the system. And why that is, I think, is demographics and debt. So you've got a pool of money. Let's assume there's no debt. So you're in a country like India, right? Very little household debt. If somebody earns $1,000, that money can move through the system because they're not servicing debts. They're also not, because it's a very young population, excessively saving. Right. Now, that chart of, um, of velocity of money is actually very correlated to a chart of the labor force participation rate in the United States, which is basically a function of demographics. And I'm going to write about this on this weekend in GMI. Is, is really what it's saying to you is that the older the population gets, the more they're incentivized to save, obviously, for retirement. And, and the debt that they have already taken on means that most of the money is used for that. So it doesn't go around the economy. So, you know, you hear people talking about each incremental dollar. I think Lacey Hunt is probably talking about it. So I haven't seen the, the interview today with Kirill, but... I'm, I'm sure he's talking about that, that each incremental dollar of debt drives less and less GDP growth. It's because of this very factor. And right. it's the debt and demographics that's causing that problem. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, uh, there was another chart that you tweeted this weekend, or I think you retweeted Remy's uh, chart, which shows the correlation between the velocity of money and CPI. And it is incredibly close. Yes. So the year on year rate of change of the velocity of money is a nine month lead on CPI. Right. And just shows that's core CPI as well. 
So core CPI looks like it's headed at least to half a percent. I think core CPI goes negative um, as you know, CPI itself, the headline CPI will go negative and the Fed PCE chain weighted deflator will go negative as well. That's what I think lies ahead. And I don't think the markets um, are able to deal with that. I was chatting to Albert Edwards over the weekend um, and you know, he's looking at the same thing, saying, you know, the market might be able to brush off um, two months of a complete economic pause, but can they can they shake off the deflation afterwards? And that's all part of the argument that I've been having for some time to say that this is a longer, bigger event than anybody understands yet. People right. can't see further than in front of their noses. Oh, look, it's opened up and it's sunny today. Maybe that's good. People are misunderstanding what's going on. Yeah, unfortunately, I agree with you completely. Uh, and this makes sense, right? If the velocity of money is collapsing, it's going to be a, an indicator that's going to show prices falling as well in the future. Yes, exactly. Right. So I want to go, I want to talk a little bit about, because I, the, the question I get asked the most is, but surely gold falls in a deflation, or if you're right, gold's going to fall again and then rally later. My argument to that is, of course, it can correct and move around. But, you know, is there a meaningful decline to come out of gold in a deflationary environment? I don't know where this narrative has come from. I don't understand it, but it's a pervasive, persistent narrative that's out there. But if you think about it, if we are to go into deflation now, what is the market going to do? What is the Fed's reaction function? They have mm -hmm. one reaction function, more. Yes. Right. So gold has to price the more. There's no other way they can go around it. So gold will go up, as will Bitcoin. So it's only now that really this trade becomes so dominant as a trade because there is no other answer when rates are at zero. So I do not believe deflation is a gold negative event. Also, I went back to the charts um, of, I think it was home stake mining in which had the longest history of any recorded equity in the United States, but eventually got bought by Barrick. But that was trading in the 1930s. So what happened? Because I think 1930 gives us the roadmap, not necessarily we go down 90%, who the hell knows? doesn't matter. The roadmap, the liquidity, hope, insolvency. Liquidity event, what happens to the mining stocks? Smashed, obviously, same as now, right? right. Gold, uh, the gold miners got killed. Then what happened is as that liquidity event came to a stop, they exploded higher. Mm -hmm. Then we had the hope phase and they went higher. And then we had the insolvency phase that went on four years and they screened higher. They mm -hmm. never looked back again. And I think that is the point is we've had the liquidity. Stop fearing the liquidity. The solvency is a slow grinding death. Mm -hmm. And gold and gold miners do extremely well in that environment. So, you know, I, so I think the narrative, people are confused about the deflation narrative, real rates, all of this. I think they're all at red herring. It's all about the reaction function of central banks and therefore the reaction function of gold. You know, that's so interesting. I didn't know the history there behind the mining stocks. Uh, but, and, you know, to extend that point, it seems as though it's pretty clear that the uh, role of the central bank uh, in uh, combating deflation in uh, you know, in this decade is obviously orders of magnitude higher than what we saw during the Great Depression. In fact, the reason that the uh, central bank has reacted with such intensity, with such speed and volume and velocity, 
is because of the fact that the response was insufficient during the 1930s. So that reaction function seems as though it's going to have an even greater effect than it would have uh, during the 1930s. Yeah, um, and what's fascinating is, and I've mentioned this before, generally speaking, anybody who pivots their entire life to avoid their fear creates their own creates the outcome that they least desire um and you see it you'll see it with friends of yours who fear something more than anything else and they tend to attract it mm-hmm. um and it's the central banks do the same they fear deflation amongst everything but basically everything they do is creating deflation and they don't realize it um and so they've got they're stuck with it now because the more they lowered rates to avoid deflation the higher the debt burden got the higher the debt burden got the more the deflation comes it's like i'm sorry guys but too late too late you should have figured this out in the 80s but it was way too late for you to figure this all out um and so i don't think there's any way of avoiding it and so here they are the thing they most feared the thing that greenspan bernanke yellen and jay powell all talked about all the research papers everything was all about what happens if you've got zero interest rates and deflation well welcome to that world yes Indeed, one of your dogs just woke up on zero interest rates. <laughs> one of the coconut girls. One of the coconut girls. <laughs> uh, so, Raul, what else are you thinking about? I'm actually curious, before we, we switch, though, if you could give a bit of context on your view on Bitcoin in this context. Again, I th- there are several narratives about Bitcoin, as you know, and everyone can choose their own narrative. And that's okay. My narrative is that at the end of this, this dollar standard, you're not going to hold it together. The dollar needs to be re- reduced in its share of world trade. We're not talking about abandoning the dollar, you know, this whole, you know, kind of end game that many of the um, kind of more extreme parts of the market, but it is 79.5% of all trade. It needs to really come down to 25% because <laughs> that's where the dollar, the US is. And even if it's slightly bigger than that, because it's the reserve currency, maybe it comes to 40% of all global trade. That's what has to happen. And the only way of doing that is by forcing a global currency basket uh, with a lower weighting. That, you know, I've been thinking about this for a very long time, and I think that's probably where the outcome lies. Um, and it's all to do with these digital currencies um, moving away from the dollar. And I'm not fully understanding how it's all going to happen yet, because you know this is all new for all of us. Right. But it's... The central banks have a, a clear plan. I don't know yet what that fully is. Um, so, you know, I'd like to speak to some people about that. Um, but I, I do think in the end, the dollar has to have a smaller um, part of global trade. But as I've said repeatedly, my view is that happens 20%, 30% higher than here um, in terms of the dollar, because nobody's forced to do anything right now. We're kind of just about holding it together. Give the dollar another 20%, 30%. Well, people are really going to think about that. And again, most people should not be looking at the DXY chart. There is the Fed nominal broad trade weighted dollar index. Uh, you can find it, I think, probably on the Fred database as well. Um, and on that, uh, you can see it's an enormous cup and handle formation that's broken higher. Uh, that was on that tweet as well. And the chances that looks like it, the dollar is going to go much higher, which is the analysis that I've been talking about for a long time now. Rob, maybe you could explain a little bit about uh, why that weighting is much uh, more indicative of what you think is reflected by the markets and talk a little bit about what that trade weighting is about. 
Well, the difference is the DXY is heavily euro weighted. Yeah. So it's kind of euro, yen, Aussie, and pounds, really. Um, but less RMB, Asian currencies, Brazilian real, that kind of thing. But when we look at the trade weighted, I'm not sure of the exact weightings, but it takes into account all of the trade with the United States and all of the various uh, countries that are involved and then looks at that. So it's not a global trade weighted, i.e., you know, a percentage of global trade, because that would all be U.S. dollars and whatever. But it, it, it's what it's it's the trade that the U.S. Do, does in dollars. Right. Um, so it's just a broader, more reflective of the overall um, dollar and not just against a couple of currencies. Yeah. DXY is almost one might think of it as sort of the legacy old world way of looking at the U.S. dollar. That's right. And, you know, that's why it's a shame that the only ETF that people can trade for this is the UUP. You're basically trading euro. Now, I happen to think the euro breaks down, um, but that's not necessarily the best trade to trade these. Right. So, Raul, what else are you looking at this Monday? I, you know, I'm thinking through property markets because it's a question I get a lot. Yeah. Generally from three groups of people, Canadians, Aussies and Brits. Mm. Uh, I've talked about it extensively for the US. I think there is a change of ownership structure where the baby boomers have property to sell that nobody wants to buy and the millennials are all still cramming to buy the same property. Right. Now, sure, property will go down in price a bit, but the problem is, is anybody who's got the higher income stream just buys the property of the millennials. There is a massive shift to millennial-based cities like Austin, New Orleans, Nashville, you know, uh, places like that, uh, where they perceive the quality of life, cost of living, um, and property to be cheaper, but they crowd themselves out every time because there's so many bloody millennials all trying to buy houses. So it's, it's a really hard market for them. Um, and the baby boomers sell property in places people don't want to be. So yeah. that's a mis mismatch, mismatch in America. And I think, yes, property prices will fall. I don't think it's catastrophic. But it's not enough for millennials to all get filled in the property market for their bids because they just can't afford it uh, unless they start buying baby boomer property. But they don't seem to want to do that yet. So well, we'll have to see if that trend reverses. Right. One of the things that we've talked about with uh, Roger and I and some and I think Ed has talked about in the platform is the potential that this uh, crisis may be at least a short term reversal of the urbanization trend we've seen now for the last several decades that millennials may want to get further away from the city, especially as uh, telecommuting and the uh, virtual company becomes uh, more of a prominent role in our lives. Well, interesting enough, the FT wrote an article about this over the weekend, and their, mm -hmm. their idea was the boomers will leave the cities because mm -hmm. they were, you know, it's, it's their health that was more at risk in this. Yeah. And maybe that helps the millennial who's, who wants to live in a city, really, because it's dynamic, it's young, it's fun, it's cultural, it's, it's, a, it's, it's the distillation of life experience itself, right? You live yeah. in London, you live in New York. I mean, it's, it's amazing, or Tokyo or Hong Kong. You know, these are great, great places to spend a few years of your life. Yeah. So, uh, you know, an opportunity is there. But, yes, things are changing for sure. But, you know, the question is, is about Canada and mm. Australia that have had these – two decade long bull markets in properties driven by the commodity cycle because they basically both sidestepped um, the 2008 property crash because the Chinese hyper stimulated and money poured in. And just as their things were slowing down, it picked up again and they avoided it. So there's a 
level of leverage and hubris within the housing markets, yep. which I saw in the UK back in 2008, that nobody thought it could fall, and it did, yep. and it badly. So people have to understand an event like this is a, so far it's a two-month event, right? Property prices are slow to move. Yeah. Nobody's selling or buying anything because nobody's going to look at properties, you know, but over time we will see prices fall. And in those countries, they'll fall significantly because cash flows are reduced. And that's the issue. You know, if you just think of the cash flows of Canada, the whole mining industry is on its knees, whatever you're mining. So therefore, the cash flow of the country is reduced and therefore the available money to go and pay mortgages gets reduced. And if property prices are falling, you end up with a ugly situation. We've seen it before in the US. We've seen it in the UK. We've seen it in Ireland. We've seen it in Spain. You know, this is how the world works. Yeah. So I think over time, if I'm right, if it's not a solvency event and this three month worth of money that all of the central banks injected and the government's injected, basically papering over the cash flow cracks, if that's all that's needed, then the property price is not falling. But if I'm right, that cash flows are reduced over time, which is this, which what creates a solvency, then we've got big problems in those property markets. The UK troubles me because there is a huge amount of buy-to-let. Nobody else is familiar with the term, really. But what it is, is the Brits got disenchanted with the pensions system back in about 2000. And they went into the property market, much like Americans did for the same reason. But the UK did it in a certain way because it's a small island, there was a pent-up demand for property. So anybody with capital or who could borrow money, borrowed money and bought flats, apartments, and rented them out. And there was a desire because we had a huge immigration rate in the UK. Uh, you know, there was a, a need for property. And that worked fine. And so people are sitting on some gains and they've been getting more rent than the cost of, the, there is some yield, more rent than the cost of their mortgage. My fear now is that property prices, no, rent prices fall because of cash flows. Mm. If rents mm. fall below the cost of the mortgages, because mortgages are not just interest only, there's payments as well that need to be made. If they fall below that, then that whole bite to the let is, is a huge haircut on the middle classes who've done this in massive size. And right. again, in a liquidity event, the central banks can deal with that. In a solvency event, when you and I don't have enough income to pay the rent, so we negotiate our rents lower, because we're like, listen, we're going to move out because we can't afford the $2,000 you're asking each month, but I pay you $1,500. Now, I'm, you're the landlord, and you're like, yeah, but my, my mortgage costs are $1,700. And you're like, well, take it or leave it, dude. And if everybody's doing it at the same time, you're going to start compounding losses. Now, yeah. and what's for some people, it's going to mean, oh, I'm going to sell out my buy to let, take some of the profit. Okay. Problem is, is you push all of the prices lower. Um, so I, I'm worried about that because that is the great hope of the English middle classes is the buy to let market. I mean, I know many people who've got five, 10 properties like that. Interesting. Yeah. You know, it reminds me at some level of this, of what we saw here in New York City. Uh, during the 1970s, when uh, you had, uh, you know, a, a aggressive rent controls in place, uh, far more so, I believe, than even today. Uh, and you would have the value of the rentals uh, falling below the value to service the debt and the value to do upkeep on uh, the apartments. And landlords would literally just walk down to the city hall and drop the keys off on the desk and goodbye. 
Sorry. Yeah, you're not allowed to do that in the UK, right? We don't have the same, most countries don't have the same bankruptcy laws. So right. in Australia, for example, you do that, you carry the debt. And that's true in most countries. Right. Yeah, non-recourse lending on, uh, on US real estate for residential. Yeah, that's extraordinary. I and mean, most people don't get that. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's what, that's my view of the property market because people ask it a lot. And I just think if I'm right, it's not this year's event. Well, it probably is. You'll start to see those cracks appear. Right now, there's no market, so it's irrelevant. Yeah. But let's see it in November, December, and then look into next year. I mean, New York, as you know, I mean, Christ, how much property has been built in the last three years. Incredible. I mean, Hudson Yards is so enormous. I, I don't know who's going to fill all this property for a while. So, you know, we've seen these property cycles. The UK was a classic property cycle in 1990 when they built Canary Wharf. I mean, they basically added like a quarter of London all over again. Took a long time to digest that and a couple of bankruptcies en route. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about this actually quite a bit. And especially when you see the the sort of traditional uh, madman style physical office that people go into Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. through 6 p.m., that market uh, may not exist in the same way that it does today or that it did before the crisis. And it really is a question about what's going to happen to all of that capacity and how is that going to feed through then to the broader economy? Yes. Um, It's interesting. And I don't know how people like WeWorks doing this because part of me thinks well when you've got a you don't have one large tenant that wants to downsize you have thousands of tenants who all need an office to pop into who all need stuff i'm not sure that it's as catastrophic i could be dead wrong um as catastrophic for that because that was still part of this same model is i don't need to work you know because you know let's say some of the guys at real vision um don't want to come to new york office they might take a, a WeWork space in Brooklyn. Right. Just get out of the house because everyone's a bit sick of working at home all the time. But yeah. working locally, well, I can just walk to the office via the coffee shop, walk home, no commute, uh, you know, have a simple rental agreement. That That's pretty attractive. So I'm not sure that that model is dead. Yeah, I'm fascinated by this, actually. What the new model looks like is such an interesting question. And exactly as you pointed out, if you think about Real Vision, if you could imagine a company that had, uh, you know, 60 dedicated desks in, in, a, in a big space, and they go, well, we don't really need 60 dedicated desks any longer, but we need a big conference room because we want to bring people in once every week or two to sit around and have a conversation. And, and maybe, you know, this person wants a, an office in Brooklyn and that person wants an office in Queens. So I think that market is much more flexible and it's much more dynamic. I have often. And we have that question, that hypothesis about the meeting rooms, right? Because our most successful meetings we've ever had are now these company wide standups. Yes. On Zoom. People yeah. feel more engaged because you're looking everybody in the eye. Yes. It's on their laptop. You know, it's. I don't know why, but it's actually changed our business. Everyone feels hyper engaged in the business. Yeah. Whether they're in London, whether they're in Cayman, whether they're in New York, whether they're in Asia. So it's, it's you know, I don't know. I really don't know. You know, we're thinking about this and I guess every other company is too. Absolutely. And it, it, it does feel exciting to be on the cusp or the threshold of a new model. Yeah. I mean, the question is, is also within the media industry, you know, does the studio model apply? And it's, exa- it's a question that we keep asking ourselves is, yeah. does it matter anymore? Yes, you know, we still haven't got the technology right for all of this because I'm in a shitty small little island with a small broadband. Right. But, you know, we're flying in a load of equipment and I'm 
kind of upgrading the antenna on my house. And let's see, my guess is we get closer and closer. I mean, the quality of your recordings has improved significantly over time. And I'm not sure that the studio-based world is necessary. And I think the Joe Rogan experience that just got sold to Spotify. $100 million. Screaming and shouting something. $100 million was cheap for that, by the way. That's the biggest media show in the world. Yeah, and it is very much a part of the new model. None of us have yet been able to touch Nick Correa in, term in terms of production quality, but we're getting there. Yeah, I know. He's, but it's unfair because he's a cameraman and editor, producer. Nick is a man of many talents in front of camera as well. So yeah. he's got an unfair advantage over us. We're competing with a ringer. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. Um, it is interesting, you know, to talk also about the about property markets. I've often said that that markets are a little bit like the uh, drunk looking under the lamppost for the keys because that's where the light is. Uh, we love to follow very high frequency data series that we can see uh, very closely and monitor on a tick by tick basis. But the reality, as you suggested, is that it's very hard to c- aggregate uh, data in real time uh, about housing uh, and about uh, real estate in general. There's just not a single place where it's where it all clears and it feeds through the system more slowly. But that does not mean that we're not about to see something that could look like a very serious retrenchment. And it's the same with private equity. It's another market that we don't have visibility on real-time data, but we know it's hugely hugely levered. What does it mean? People think, oh, great, great opportunity for private private equity if there is distress. Yeah, but maybe they're part of the distress, and that's been my argument for a long time. There was excess crowding into private equity. Uh, I don't think it's the end of the private market cycle, but, but I think there's some pain to be had. But again... Now going to happen in two months. Unlikely to happen in six months. Talk to me next year, and then we'll see. Yeah, you know that reminds me of something. The single most interesting article that I saw over the weekend, interestingly enough, was not sort of a highbrow finance article. It was one of these, uh, you know, those slideshow kind of decks that you see on Business Insider all the time. I I used to write them when I was at CNBC all the time. People love these articles. Um, And this woman did this piece. That's uh, when I did. That's when kind of I became a bit better known was when I had the end game and it was one of those slide decks yeah. and it got like 27 million views or something crazy. People love them. Um, and um, a woman did this piece uh, called uh, the seven things you'll never see in retail stores again. Um, you know, the, the, the headline may be a little bit sensationalistic, but what's interesting about it is it, what she did was she went and grabbed other stories that she or other people had written over the past couple of months about stores that were, you know, uh, dispensing with this and doing away with that. And so I'm flipping through this slide deck and it it starts out, the first one is no more fitting rooms. And the second one is no more product testers. Number three is no more immediate entry into the store. You're going to queue outside with, uh, you know, the X's taped on the sidewalk that we see to space people out. No more manual doors, no more unlimited stocks, no more browsing. You're going to walk in and buy your stuff and leave. No more cash. And I'm reading this article, and it's ostensibly about you know the, the way the retail experience is going to change. But I'm reading this, and I'm thinking, my God, the value proposition for physical retail space, all of the advantages that it historically had over online shopping. I really want to be able to go into the store because I want to try on the sport coat or I want to try on the dress. All of those value propositions that it held, uh, you know, that held value for consumers are all drifting away. You know, at a more philosophical level, I've been very interested to see that the the global economy, particularly the U.S., has been 
saved in the last couple of recessions, last few recessions, by the consumer. Right. Yes, 2008 was bad, but the consumer came back. And this is the first time the consumer, we've had a consumer recession. It's led by the consumer. Yeah. It started with manufacturing, but that was a different story. Then this consumer thing. And, you know, consumption is, what, 76% of US GDP. It's, it's ridiculously overweight. Massive. Nobody makes anything. They just buy shit on debt. I mean, it's crazy. Um, I think there is a potential that that 76% or whatever the number is um, reduces back down to its historical longer-term average, and let's say it goes back down to 60% or 65%, something like that. Yeah. I think that, that's got to be a, somewhat of a reasonable assumption. That would imply higher savings rates, which I think need to happen. Um, I think people realize that they were operating with too little cash. I mean, there's a lot of changes that could come out of this, and I think yeah. you're right. Um, I don't know how retail works. Obviously, those changes that you talk about are probably short-term. Yeah. Some of them, like what happened to airports after 9-11, end up being long-term. Right. I don't know what, what the long-term, what the short-term is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we don't know. We really don't know, um, you know what the duration of this is going to be, and we also don't know uh, how durable it will be in terms of, uh, of popping back up and how durable those changes will be. But what I do know is that since the March 23rd low on the S&P, uh, Amazon is up almost 28%. Yes, exactly. Well, Amazon is eating all retailers. You know, I talked about this before in the, on the Robin Daily Briefing. The richest people in the world for consistent multi-generations tend to be retailers, um, particularly kind of essential goods retailers, supermarket chains. And basically, they're the world's biggest supermarket of everything. Right. Um, and it's very difficult to beat. And yes, there will be other people in that equation over time. Um, but they're very, 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 very difficult to beat because of all of the economies of scale that they have. Yeah. And when you make it national and add really rich data trails, it's a powerful model. Yeah, exactly right. Um, talk of a powerful model. One of the things that I really did love last week on Real Vision was Hugh Hendry interviewing Richard Werner. Yeah. I thought that was a fabulous piece of Real Vision. What makes Real Vision so special? Because when I interviewed Hugh, he talked about Richard Werner. I'd never heard of him before. Talked about the documentary. On Twitter, everyone's like, oh, I'm watching this documentary. It's amazing. You should get Richard Werner. So I said, Hugh, will you interview Richard Werner for us? He goes, of course I would. Well, first of all, I'm not sure he's my hero. I might not be able to talk. I, th I said, Hugh, you've never not been able to talk. <laughs> and, and so Hugh then, we, we managed to tap them both up on Twitter. They agree. The next week, they're on Real Vision for an unbelievable piece of content. A, no other network in the world could have had Hugh Hendry in a, like a singlet, slightly <laughs> sweaty in the Caribbean with kind of semi-clad people in the background <laughs> conducting an interview of an economist that has kind of been off the radar screen for a while um, and having a really intellectual conversation, jumping all around the place with glee, um, trying to understand new ways of looking at the world. I, it was just real vision magic there. I've never seen any other network do anything like that anywhere in the world. And it was brilliant. And we did it without a studio. We did it without a studio and no idea what Hugh was going to talk about. You know, I love the fact it's unscripted. It's real. It's a real conversation with real people about real stuff. And yeah. Hugh was going on a journey of discovery like we all were. And everyone's right. like, right, I want to know more about this now. I'm sure we'll get Richard Werner back for a more structured interview. I think it was exactly right to have Hugh in that way because that was like a real conversation. Yeah. Uh, and then we'll come back and we'll develop his views. One of the things I was thinking about his views, because 
I don't agree with a lot, all, some, whatever, an amount of what Richard Werner says. And part of it is my lack of understanding because I'm only just starting to get familiar with his work. But the talk of, okay, what we need to do is we need to have more banks and then allocate, get the, the central bank on the government to kind of force allocations into sectors via the banks of credit. That was his idea. That's why the Japanese did so well. He's building now, I think, trying to build a small bank in the UK for the same purposes to allow the flow of credit into small business areas and stuff like that, to have more targeted credit that you can kind of centralize the flow and then and then disseminate it out. And he was talking about the US model and the ECB model seems to be to destroy all of the banks. And by the time you get to a digital currency, you have one bank, the central bank, that does all lending. And you basically nationalize the banking system in Europe. I think that may well happen and Japan too. So we'll wait and see. But I'm not sure that the model he's suggesting works either, because basically that's what the, Japan, the Chinese just did. They copied Japan. They had loads of banks. The central government said, OK, regional authorities, you need to allocate X amount of credit to these kind of sectors. They gave it to the banks. The banks did it. The, the end result was the largest credit boom in all recorded history. And China's not going to recover from it. But I'm not sure that it felt it was too much about credit yeah. and not about the offset of that. Yeah. You know, creating a boom on credit still leaves you with a load of credit. We've not seen anybody be able to have a credit boom and grow their way out of that debt. Yeah. The debt has grown their way out of the credit, out, out of the economy. And so the debt becomes oversized. Yeah, especially when there's the misallocation of capital uh, caused by a centralized uh, authority trying to make decisions out in the provinces. But, you know, Raoul, in a broader sense, this really is a perfect real vision piece for exactly the reasons you pointed out. Right. It's it's someone, you know, someone you maybe haven't heard of. Maybe you agree. Maybe you disagree. Most of us are uh, I'm speaking for myself, at least not experts on the history of the Bank of Japan. Uh, and you can come together and see it in a conversation uh, where those ideas all get hashed out. Yeah. Again, I wrote a comment on it. It was just, you know, for me, all of that, and it's it's irrelevant whether I agree or disagree, or you do. It's yeah. here is a whole new opinion that we hadn't really taken into account from a very credible person. So let's absorb it and put it into our in, into the stew and see what comes up for each of us. You know, yeah. we all, as I always say, we all do our own homework and reach our own conclusions. But that was a great input, and I loved it for that. Yeah, very much. Me too. Raul, we've run over time, as we always do. As always. Too much to talk about. <laughs> always. Still enjoyable. Yes, indeed. This was great. Uh, looking forward to seeing you again on Friday. Absolutely. I look forward to it. See you then, Raul. I uh, hope everybody has a, an exciting week. Let's see what happens. My tip for this week is watch the dollar. Watch the dollar. What are you watching it against? Are you watching broad Euro. dollar or euro? Euro is the one for me that I think is so close to breaking. We're not there yet. Keeps trying doesn't do it, but that's on my radar screen for the week. Great. Thanks for joining us. Take care. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.